Choose Linux, episode 6, for April 4th, 2019. Hello and welcome to the show that captures the excitement of discovering Linux. I'm Joe. And I'm Jason. And here we are for episode six. And it's going to be a little bit different. Later on, we're going to be talking about actually getting into Linux for the first time. But before that, let's have a quick chat about Manjaro that you've been playing with this week. And it sounds like it's gone very well for you. It's gone too well. <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the hammer to drop, but it hasn't. So this is the fourth of nine Linux distros that I've been putting through the the gaming test where uh, I'm looking at what is the setup required? How easy or difficult is it to install the drivers? What are the little nuances that uh, that it takes to just get up in gaming, right? Well, hang on. The first question is which Manjaro? Because ah. they seem to be all given equal weight. Now, obviously, I gravitate towards XFCE, and that happens to be the first one on the download page. Presumably, that's not what you went with. XFCE seems to be their flagship distro. At least that's how they position it. That's how they present it on the website. Uh, but of course, I went with GNOME. Right, okay. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Because <laughs> you did mention Manjaro Deepin on the last episode, and I did install it on my test laptop, and I had a quick look at it. I can't say I was really in-depth with it or anything, but it seemed all right, but just not really for me, really. But the XFC version I've also installed, and I really like it, and I would recommend it. It's a very sort of modern-looking, as far as XFC can be modern-looking version of it. So, yeah, highly recommended. So you went with GNOME, obviously. And by the sound of things, there's not a huge amount to talk about because it sort of had all the proprietary drivers and just everything worked. Yeah, honestly, I'm not sure how I'm going to fill out an entire article with Manjaro because, <laughs> you know, these are 2,000-word epics and there have been no headaches, no snags, no workarounds that I've really had to mess with. You install Manjaro, and at the bootloader, if you have an NVIDIA GeForce card, you can choose the free or the non-free driver, right? We've talked about the, the Nouveau versus proprietary NVIDIA drivers before. You can just click non-free, and boom, you have NVIDIA 418.43. And then you install the system. And you get to your first boot. And guess what? Steam is installed. So you didn't even have to do that? No, it's installed right out of the box. So it literally is whether you're using AMD or NVIDIA, it is literally install Manjaro and start playing. No 32-bit libraries need to be downloaded. Um, no other dependencies, etc. Excellent. What about Proton, though? Presumably that was a little bit harder to get going. It was not. <laughs> really? What was that really, pre I, as well? I was expecting. I was just waiting, you know, kind of anxious. Oh, what's, what's, come on, be good to me, be good to me. Um, it just worked. Excellent. And frame rates wise, presumably that was pretty good as well? Basically on par with Fedora, Pop, and Solus, which are the, the three previous distros that I've tested. Except Manjaro looks like it pulls ahead with DXVK just a little bit. Right. So it may have taken the crown then for easiest distro. Yeah, it has. I, I was surprised. I really thought that was going to be Pop, right? Because I had a lot of praise for Pop and it was yeah. easy. I didn't think it could get easier than Pop. Hmm. And with Manjaro being an Arch-based distro that's, you know, a, a stable rolling release targeted at beginners, but still Arch-based, I was 
really under the impression that there might be some some more complicated configurations to do. And and get this, you know what else? Lutris is in Manjaro's repository. And when you click on Lutris to install that, it automatically downloads Wine Staging. Nice. No command line, no adding repos, no extra steps at all. Wow, this does seem like the perfect distro. What do you think of it other than the gaming stuff then? I think if I had to level a criticism at it, it would be that the the software center itself and some of the menus just feel a little bit outdated, at least with the GNOME desktop. Okay. Yeah, it just felt to me like it was a little bit outdated. It could just use a little bit um, more polish. As far as having to check a box and then click commit, and some of the language is, is not what I would consider beginner-friendly. It can take a minute to, to sort of familiarize yourself with how to navigate the store, how to search, things like that. Beyond that, it seems like a very, very polished distro. I've only had about 48 hours with it, admittedly. Because it was so easy, you didn't need to stick around with it. Yeah, because, <laughs> I mean, like I was, I was telling you before the show that uh, I expected for this to take more time. It's not going to be a very interesting Linux gaming report over at Forbes because everything just worked and it was easy. So yeah, at this point, I would have to say that while I prefer the aesthetics of Pop! OS, if I were to look at a Linux beginner who wants to get into gaming, I think Manjaro 18 would be at the top of my list. So far. So far, so far. And I think um, what remains is Ubuntu 18.10, Debian 9, Linux Mint 19, Elementary OS, and Deepin. Yeah, of those, I don't think you're going to have a better experience, but I don't know. I've never really tried this gaming stuff, but I would have thought that because Manjaro is based on Arch, it's not quite cutting-edge Arch. It's kind of a, a little bit behind, but it's relatively new packages, and so you're probably going to have the best experience on a rolling release rather than on the snapshot release distros. So, and uh, yeah, Debian, I don't think you're going to have a great time because <laughs> Debian's really not focused on proprietary software at all. It's very much the opposite. Mm-hmm. You can get more or less whatever you want working on it, but it's it's just not designed for it. So, yeah, I'd be surprised if you had a better experience than Manjaro. Um, I mean, one bit of advice I would give to people is definitely give Manjaro a try because it's a good introduction to Arch because there's this kind of myth that Arch is impossible to install or whatever. It's time-consuming to install, but... Um, it's not that hard that if you follow the instructions carefully, it's all fine. But Manjaro is trivial to install and will give you a window into the Arch experience. And you can start experimenting with Pac-Man on the command line, which is the um, package manager, as the name suggests. And as a as an 80s video game nerd, I happen to love what they call it. Yeah, yeah, obviously. So, yeah, from that point of view, I think Manjaro gets a thumbs up with me. I mean, Chris is not a big fan of it. He says just go for Arch or go for Antergos, which is much more vanilla. It's it's a very easy installation process, and I've installed that recently as well, and it is good, but there's just something about Manjaro, the, the attention to detail and the polish and the way they make XFCE look modern that really attracts me to it. And having tried out a couple of the other ones, the other flavors of it, um, they seem to be similar as well. So Manjaro has always been one of my favorites. And I think if Ubuntu just disappeared overnight, 
um, and I couldn't use Ubuntu anymore, then I would probably be looking to move to Manjaro, I think. Huh. I have to ask you about Arch because I don't have any experience with it, but it seems to have this mythical status among Linux users. You know, there's, all, of course, the, you know, by the way, I use Arch joke, and everyone says it's so difficult to install. But my question is, is it intentionally difficult to install? Or is that necessary to sort of support how flexible and powerful it is? That's a good question. I don't think it's intentionally difficult. I just think that it's not intentionally easy. But then you get something like Antergos, and there used to be something called Architect. I'm not sure if that's still around, which is a very simple installer for it. So there are ways to get it installed easily. And I think that, yeah, the, the more complex something is to install, generally the more powerful it is. If you take it to the extreme of Gen 2, where you compile everything, that is incredibly powerful because you can have things compiled exactly for your hardware. But really, these days, you're not going to see huge gains in performance by doing that. So there's not much point, really. And with Arch, it is incredibly powerful. You can have whatever you want. You can build up your distro to be whatever you want it to be. And I think that is part of why it is relatively difficult to install. But I think that you ought to do it. It's only going to take you probably one afternoon to do it. You've got relatively powerful hardware there to do it on, and you've got a decent internet connection, so it's not going to take forever. And uh, I think you should do it, because it is a good way to learn a bit more about what goes into installing Linux in the first place. I wouldn't recommend it to an absolute beginner, but uh, someone who's been dabbling with it for as long as you have, I think you should do it and, and document it. And I think it would be a good good article. I mean, you know, I, you don't need to document the steps because they're all there in the documentation already, but just your sort of takeaways from it and hmm. And why you found it difficult, what you know, what bits you found easy or whatever. Yeah, I joke that installing Arch is my end game. That's Linux from scratch, surely. That's the the true end game. Oh yeah. I have no experience with that. Well, no, I've never tried it. It's a book, essentially. It's not really a distro, it's just a book, a set of instructions that tells you how to put your whole distro together from compiling everything. And you know, that that is real hardcore mode of installing Linux. So maybe that should be your absolute end game. Well, I can at least make a promise that someday we will sit here and we will talk about Arch. Okay. So overall on Manjaro then, um, very positive thumbs up, it sounds like. Yeah, in fact I'm I'm eager to test out the other flavors now, especially Deepin and I might even try XFCE since uh since you used the word modern and I haven't seen many iterations of XFCE that look modern, but... Well, I did caveat it with relatively, so, you know. It's never going to look completely modern, is it? It's XFCE, but there we go. Um, All right, well, let's move on and talk about choosing Linux in the first place. This is something that's been requested by quite a few listeners. And it's such a broad topic, and it can be interpreted in so many different ways by different people based on their experience and their needs. So we don't want to do this as like the gospel truth, right? This is the beginner's guide that everyone should follow. I think what we want to do here is just talk about what we've learned in our Linux journey, right? And and help people choose the right distros and, and narrow down what kind of hardware they want and figure out what's best based on their needs. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I suppose we should start with hardware then. The thing is that if you've got a perfectly functional 
Windows or Mac system, then my first bit of advice is don't mess with it. If that's working fine for you, then just leave that be and find another machine to experiment with first. Ultimately, hopefully, you'll get to the point where you can replace Windows or macOS and and embrace the freedom, but things will go wrong in your journey. I mean, you have had plenty of things go wrong, and you've had the benefit of having multiple machines, right? Yeah, and, and, and to be completely honest, those things have gone wrong because either I was jumping the gun or I wasn't reading the manual, or I just didn't have the knowledge. I saw a quote somewhere, I can't remember who said it, but uh, it was something to the effect of the biggest risk to computer security is the user. Oh, definitely, (laughs) definitely. And I want to interject something else here. You might hear people say, yeah, just blast out your Windows partition, blast out your Mac partition, and just dive in 100%. Having taken this journey, I do not recommend that. No, I don't either. Right. If you want to get into Linux and you want to work towards that being your daily driver, then that's awesome. And that's obviously something we're going to applaud. But don't handicap yourself and don't ruin the experience by just rushing into it and trying to do everything at once. Yeah. Savor it. Take your time. Use what you still need on Windows. If you have some games that you still need to play, play them on Windows. If you use Adobe apps, use them on Windows and just... Take your time and sink into it and learn it at your own pace. Yeah. Now, hardware-wise, I would suggest trying to blag, as we would say in this country, uh, a free laptop off someone because often you'll find people have got an old laptop that is broken because Windows just takes ages to boot or doesn't boot at all or whatever, and the hardware is generally fine. Um, And sometimes people might get a bit funny about their data, so you can just take the hard drive out and just buy an SSD. I mean, these days you can buy for 20 quid a 120 gig SSD or something, a SATA one, and it's just unbelievably cheap. So that's my first bit of advice. If you don't know anyone who's got one, then look on Craigslist or Gumtree or eBay. You can pick up one really cheap. If you want something a bit better, then maybe a ThinkPad, uh, an X220 you can get for... I don't know, maybe less than £100 if you want something that's actually reasonably good. Not all laptops and wireless cards are going to work brilliantly, but if you go for a relatively old ThinkPad like that, you're generally going to have no problems with any distros. So if you are looking to buy something new, you know, as it were, secondhand refurbished, then I would say some sort of ThinkPad, and you could do a lot worse than the X220. Getting more general about hardware, my best piece of advice is if it's running all Intel components, you're going to have a really easy time of it. Yeah, definitely. If you don't get something with uh, NVIDIA or AMD graphics, if it's just on board Intel graphics, ideally an Intel wireless card, you're generally going to have no problems. Of course, you could buy a Raspberry Pi. You're not going to have the same experience as with x86 hardware, but it's a good primer on sort of how Linux works and everything. We've covered a bit of Raspberry Pi stuff in the past and no doubt will in the future. So that's a very cheap option as well. But let's say you have got a laptop or a desktop machine that you can set aside for this and just blow away whatever's on there and install Linux. I suppose the first thing to do is pick a distro. Now, I would say go for something Ubuntu-based. Depending on the age of the machine, there's various flavors. Obviously, I always encourage people to try out Ubuntu if it's a fairly old machine or even if it's new. But then there's there's just plenty of flavors. But you, Jason, favor various sites that will kind of point you towards the perfect distro for you. 
Yes. My first choice is going to be LibraHunt.org. This was designed a few months ago by a student, and he contacted me out of the blue, said, I'm working on this this project that'll help uh, beginners to Linux understand what Linux is in really simple language. And then I have a list, like a curated list of 44 of what I consider to be the best, most popular distros. And it'll ask them a series of questions and it will arrive upon a top result and then a couple other suggestions that, that match their criteria. And some of that criteria is, do you prefer a desktop that, that sort of resembles Windows or Mac OS? Do you prefer a popular operating system that has a large community with a lot of resources and help? Or do you prefer kind of boutique distros like we've talked about, you know, elementary OS and and distros like that? A lot of really easy to answer questions. And when I first covered this, I did it about 10 different times and I was pretty satisfied with the results that it was kicking out. So it's LibraHunt.org. It's very simple, very easy to understand, and and very fast. Just to backtrack a little bit, Joe, I would definitely agree with you about picking an Ubuntu-based distribution, whether that's Ubuntu itself or its you know seven official flavors, or elementary OS or Pop OS, because there's such a large user base and so many resources available to you for help. Not that I think you'll need a lot of help, but when you do get stuck, those answers are out there. Yeah, exactly. Fedora would be the other choice as well, because that's fairly well used. Not quite as much as Ubuntu, but um, it is also a very solid distro that has been tested a lot and is going to generally work very well. Some people just don't really get on with the way Ubuntu works, and Fedora's kind of got a few different quirks. So yeah, I'd say it's worth checking out the two of them and see which one suits you best. When we're talking about live USBs, the, the brilliance of those is that most distributions will let you run it right off of your USB stick and use that same USB stick to install it onto your hard drive. And I found that the best and, and most importantly, the easiest way of flashing what's called an ISO, which is the installation image, to a USB stick is with a program called Etcher. And I believe that is at etcher.io. It's it's cross-platform, so it's Mac, it's Linux, it's Windows, it's free. It operates the exact same way across all of those operating systems. So you get you know that nice uniform experience no matter where you're doing it. And it's just easy. You download it, you pop a USB stick in your computer, as long as it's, uh, I would recommend, four gigabytes or higher. Yeah, these days you're going to struggle to buy a USB stick any smaller than that, I would have thought. Um, <laughs> And speed of USB stick really matters here. If you've got a, a really old or cheap one, it's going to take a long time to write that image onto it. Whereas if you've got a nice, fast USB 3 one, then it's going to be way quicker. So it's worth investing, I don't know, maybe 15 pounds, dollars, whatever, in a reasonably good one, just a sort of 8 or 16 gig USB 3 drive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you're if you have a USB 3.0 drive and you're say installing Ubuntu to an NVMe SSD, it's it's done in like 3 minutes. Your install's just done yeah. in, you know, the snap of a finger. It's it's brilliant. But yeah, Etcher makes it super easy. You just go to whatever website you've chosen, 
for your distro, download the ISO and tell Etcher where that is and it takes care of the rest. The next part can be a little bit tricky though, and that is telling your PC to boot from the USB. Do you have any general advice on that, Joe? Because so many different motherboards and, and so many different OEMs and they all kind of tackle it a little bit differently. Well, there's two main methods to make the BIOS boot from USB. There's either making it change the boot order or there's finding the boot menu, the temporary boot menu. And um, that can be all sorts of keys to get into either of them. It can be anything from escape all the way along that top row to delete, essentially, mm -hmm. any of the F keys. And you can just either try bashing them and you've got to kind of tap them loads. It's different on a Mac, but we're assuming kind of uh, non-Mac hardware here. And otherwise, just look up your particular uh, machine and just try and find what the key is to get into either the boot menu or the, the BIOS EFI and change that boot order. What, how do you do it then? Do you generally go for um, a boot menu or do you just have it set to boot from USB? I normally just find the, the that one-time boot menu, right? So on the XPS 13, you can hit delete to get into your BIOS, which is exhaustive, the options that are in that, that BIOS screen. Or you can just hit F12, and it'll actually flash across the screen very briefly, hit F12 for one-time boot. So that's what I do on all my systems, if that's an option. And it's normally going to be one of those function keys. But if you're in doubt you can almost always hit delete or F11 or F12 to get into your BIOS. Yeah, or F8 or escape. As I said, it could be a lot of those ones <laughs> yeah. up there. But in general, I think if you find what just the manufacturer is, they tend to do it the same across a series of computers. So if it's an Asus ROG laptop, you probably don't have to find your specific model. You can just probably research what is the key for that series of computers. But I would actually recommend your advice, which is just jam on all the keys on that top row. Right the second you boot up your computer, just kind of slide your keys all along from escape all the way down to F12, and you'll, you'll find it. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I'd say do it methodically, which is turn it on and then tap, 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 tap on escape, see what happens. If nothing happens, then reboot it. And then, so my, my general order is escape, delete, then F12, F8, F10, and then the other F keys if I start to get desperate. The reason I think we're spending a few minutes on this is because when you're in Windows, a lot of people have what's called the fast boot option enabled. And what it does is it skips that, that boot splash. It's, I think it's called a boot splash screen where you get mm. all that information, you know, press this to do this, press this to do this. And Windows 8 forward, I think, so Windows 8 and 10, I believe one of the default options is just to do fast boot so that your system boots up faster and it bypasses that information screen when you power on your PC. So it can be hard, to, it can be difficult or impossible to see, which is why it does involve a little bit of guesswork. Yeah, and experimentation ultimately. But that's what this whole thing's about. You're experimenting with Linux, and that starts with experimenting with your hardware, unfortunately. Or fortunately, depending on the way you look at it. It's all good fun, really. That, that, that's another takeaway here is it really depends why you're doing this. If you're doing it just for a bit of fun, then that's great. You pick up an old laptop off someone or eBay or whatever, and have some fun with it. If you need to get serious work done, then 
I don't know if necessarily, I shouldn't be saying this, but I don't know if desktop Linux is necessarily the right choice because there's going to be a learning curve. Once you get it installed, things are going to be different. I mean, it's come a long way. And if all you need is a browser, then obviously you can use Firefox or get Chrome installed easily on most distros and it's going to be fine. But if there's specific niche bits of software that you need, if, if there's some accounting software that you need to get your work done or some Adobe stuff or whatever it happens to be, then you are going to hit some roadblocks. And that's why I think it's important to do this bit of experimentation first and not just wipe your system and just go for it. Um, I mean, there's the dual boot option as well, which we haven't talked about, which I think my order of doing this was, when I first got into it, was... I had some kind of test hardware that I got hold of and did my testing on that and then got comfortable with Linux. And then the next stage was on my main machine to go for a dual boot, which involves resizing the partition, the Windows partition, which thankfully these days can be done automatically in the installer. Obviously, you need to have backups, but that shouldn't even need to be said. Even if you're not messing around with Linux, no matter what your operating system is, you should have good backups regardless. But assuming that you do have good backups, then that will be the next stage for me is go dual boot because there's always going to be some things. Like, for example, my printer was working fine in Linux. I upgraded it. I think it was from Ubuntu 12.04 to 14.04. Then my printer stopped working and has never worked again <laughs> in Linux, that is. But I've got that Windows partition on that desktop machine that's hooked up to the printer and so now I just have to boot into that to do printing. And so there's often going to be little use cases like that. So I'd, my advice, uh, you know, again, people will criticize me for this. You're supposed to be this Linux advocate, but I'm also a pragmatist first, and that is keep your Windows partition around. Even if you never boot into it, you know, can shrink it down nice and small so it's not taking up too much disk space. But I would say keep it around just in case. Well, I don't think being a Linux advocate means enforcing upon people that Linux is the only way for everything, right? It's it's kind of extolling the benefits of Linux. Yeah, that's true, actually. And you will probably find that there's an awful lot of stuff that you can do with Linux, and there's way more stuff that you can't do with any other OS. But if you have habits that are formed and hard to break that need some Windows-only software, then you... you going to struggle to get away from that quickly. Yeah, indeed. I mean, your your PC is a tool. So use the best tool for the job. And I think that for the majority of applications, Linux has the best tools and also more importantly, the least amount of headaches. I think for the average user, right? Less less Windows updates headaches and less anxiety about, you know, when's my system going to reboot and things like that. But uh, yeah, I totally agree with you, Joe. Don't don't feel like you have to just dive in headfirst, blindfolded into the fire, you know? <laughs> yeah. Pop quiz, Joe. You've installed your favorite distribution. What are the first three pieces of software that you grab? Well, Firefox, if it's not installed already, but that usually is, Audacity and Mumble so that I can mm. talk to people like you and record it. Yeah. Wow, I just realized that choosing three is going to be very difficult, but I'll recommend three that might make your life a little bit easier. Standard notes, kind of an Evernote replacement. 
um, really easy to install, cross-platform, across Android, iOS, Windows, Mac, everything, automatically syncs your notes back and forth. And I love it because anytime I have a show idea or an article idea or just a tip from the community, which those fly in all the time, I just throw it in whatever device I have in my hand. I throw it in standard notes and it automatically syncs to everything else I have it installed on. Also, sync thing, which is effectively the same type of thing, but for your files. Yeah, that's a popular choice. And I would have to say Kodi. Yeah, Kodi is a great media player. We talked about that on the Raspberry Pi episode that we did. Yeah, highly recommended. And that has stuck around. Um, my wife and I are loving it. And so now every time I install a new Linux distro to test, it's Kodi. Just so that I can, wherever I'm, wherever I'm at, I can stream my music or stream uh, the, the, the media that I have on there, on the Pi. And it works, it works great even over Wi-Fi. It's brilliant. I love it. Well, hopefully that's a good primer for getting into Linux in the first place. As I said, a lot of people have asked us about that. So hopefully that's uh, answered some questions there. But we'd better get out of here. Be sure to go to choose-linux.show slash subscribe to get all the future episodes. And go to choose-linux.show slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. And if you want to talk to us on Twitter, I am at KillYourFM. And I'm at Joe Ressington. We'll be back in two weeks with more exciting discoveries. Speak to you soon. See you later.